Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of O2 and You. I'm your host, David Garbeth, the Executive Director of O2 Utah, and joining me today, Dr. Logan Mitchell, uh, Professor at the University of Utah, um, Research Assistant Professor in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences. Dr. Mitchell, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. You've been in the news lately because of um, the presentation you made and you've been making regarding kind of the, I think your, your title is The Untold History of Air Quality in Utah. And I saw this presentation the other day and found it just fascinating for many different points. We're gonna cover that today. I'd love to get into it um, with you. Before though, two things. One, we're a big fan over here of a study that you are a co-author on. Um, we had a call out for our viewers and listeners, and that is uh, Human Health and Economic Costs of Air Pollution. Talk about this one all the time. This is the study that found uh, Utahns on average lose two years of their lives um, because of our dirty air and our economy. It's costing our economy approximately $2 billion a year. Um, you're one of the co-authors there. Mm -hmm. uh, before we jump into the nitty gritty, tell us a little bit about you. How'd you end up at the U? Yeah, so my background, I actually studied greenhouse gases and ice cores um, at Oregon State. That's where I did my PhD. And so went to Antarctica a couple of times, drilled for ice cores, you know, brought them back to the US and, and measured them, melt, melted them and extracted the ancient air and measured greenhouse gas concentrations. Um, and then, you know, after I was done with my PhD, I was really interested in working on, on something that's a little bit more current <laughs> and, and came to the University of Utah to look at greenhouse gases here in Salt Lake, um, actually was the first project that I was working on. And just being here, obviously, uh, you know, air quality is such an important issue. Um, started getting into air quality measurements, and um, the 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 project that I'm really excited about now is we're we've put instruments on tracks trains, and we're just now starting to put them on electric buses. So we're monitoring air quality across the city in real time and looking at the spatial and temporal patterns of air pollution. Um, in the course of doing research, I, I got to wonder, when, when we, did air quality really become a big, important issue in Utah? When did people start really caring about it and talking about it? And I started looking around for an answer to that, and I couldn't really find very much. Um, I'd heard one presentation that had mentioned something about some, some groups in the 20s that were active about it, but in the 1920s, but I couldn't really find very much information. Eventually I stumbled upon the historical newspaper archive uh, that's, that's maintained at the University of Utah and, and started digging through there and just found a wealth of information in the newspaper archives about air quality. And that has really opened up this treasure trove of information. And it turns out air quality has been a serious issue. Obviously, it's been a serious issue in Utah since, since you know, people have lived here. 
Um, so how long did it take you to compile this research that led to the, the report? Um, it's still a work in progress. There are still a bunch of threads that I um, that I'm trying to track down. And one of the reasons why I'm giving a bunch of presentations about it now um, is that, you know, I don't have, I'm not a historian. I don't have a background in doing historical research. And there are so many threads that tie into Utah's air quality history that are really fascinating that, I mean, I would love it for, you know, dozens of, of you know, researchers, but also just people who are interested in the subject to kind of pick up some of these threads and run with them and see what they can find out. Um, I, I, I just heard from a couple weeks ago, I heard from somebody who lives up in Cache Valley, who their, I think their grandfather was one of the air quality monitors um, for in for Salt Lake City in for the railroads, actually, the railroads employed him um, back in the 1920s, um, which is kind of crazy. So he would go, go up a ladder to the to the roof of a building every day and look around and he would look for buildings that were emitting a ton of air pollution, a ton of smoke. And then he'd, you know, get on a get on a phone or or somehow get a message to them like, hey, you're you're emitting too much. You need to check your furnace. Like that's what they did every single day. It's kind of crazy. Well, let's jump into some of your research. I just think this is fascinating, and um, particularly, uh, you know, I'd be interested to hear from you. How did the state? How did Salt Lake? How did the Wasatch Front think about this issue, particular before the advent of the Federal Clean Air Act? Yeah, the, the Clean Air Act, um, you know, it, that really came into being in the 1960s. And then in 1970, it was amended. Um, and that's when the EPA was created. And that's when, you know, before 1970, it was really just kind of funding for research and trying to understand air quality. But in 1970, that's when the EPA was created. That's when I, I feel like the there was a shift in the in the mentality then. In, in the 1970s, air quality was much worse than it is today um, because vehicles didn't have catalytic converters. Um, in, in Salt Lake, there was still a lot of people using coal to heat their homes. And so we actually had pretty bad air quality. Um, and you know, that transition though, to create a regulatory agency has really shifted the focus and the, the, the mentality of thinking about air quality from one of, hey, this is a problem, we all need to solve it, to, hey, here's a regulatory agency, we're gonna, we need to regulate it. And mm. that, that mentality, that kind of regulatory mentality, I think has been, has resulted in huge advances in our air quality, huge, huge benefits. I mean, and economic studies have said that it's like $32 of benefit for every dollar of of mitigation, um, and but at some point we're going to reach a, a, you know, when we've reached the 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 clean, you know, we, we when we don't have any violations of the Clean Air Act, um, you know, that's as far as regulations will be able to take us. And so, 
and that's I'm kind of thinking ahead into the future when we get to that point. You know, we won't be in violation of clean air rules, but we're still not going to have great air quality because that's you know we're still violating some days um, now. But you know, most people would still say we don't have we still have air quality problems today. Um, but anyways, getting back to your you know pre 1970. Yeah, and I want to just I want to stop on that yeah. point for a second because you got yeah. to something that has been the theory that I've been trying to explain to people for a while that you know no disparaging the Clean Air Act, incredible progress in our country, mm -hmm. incredible progress here in the Wasatch Front, um, saved countless lives, have made us all so much better off. Um, but like you, I think I've. I've in some ways, it's clear that it's there's been a shift in thinking, and yeah, I think we've reached where I would say we've probably reached that point at least low, but in Utah politically, where the Clean Air Act has become somewhat of a crutch and an impediment to taking advanced steps to really make progress on air quality. And of course, we've advanced here a piece of legislation called Prosperity 2030 aimed specifically at re-empowering Utah to think about this. Um, but before we get to that point, this is, there's a lot here that we're talking about. So what, when you say that Utahns thought about this differently, they thought about it as kind of a collective action effort as opposed to a regulatory effort pre-Cleaner Act. So if we're talking back in the, you know, turn of the century, everybody's got coal powered or everyone's using coal in their furnace black clouds everywhere, all these brick buildings covered in soot. How did Utahns think about pollution then? You know, there's there was a, a focus on the, the value of pure air and of some of the language that they used was really interesting. They talk about the, the moral atmosphere. Um, we need to guard the moral atmosphere and the there's value on purity and sanctity of of the environment um one of the one of the early quotes um that's in the newspapers was actually from 1960 um brigham young himself says what constitutes health wealth joy and peace in the first place good pure air is the greatest sustainer of animal life just and, in 1860, right? Uh, sorry, 1860, 1860, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, in the context that he was he was talking about that, you know, he was talking about they were very concerned about indoor air quality because if you if your chimney is not well ventilated, you can trap that smoke inside your house, and people died because of that. Um, and so, I just think it's it's almost it's almost like a bookend. I feel like it's a bookend. Like that was the early bookend, and now um, there's a bunch of studies coming out about the the dangers of indoor air quality and how it can increase asthma rates. Uh, if you're using, for example, a natural gas stove inside your house to cook with, um, that actually increases the the nitrogen dioxide in your house, and it increases your chances and your children's chances of asthma. Um, and, and you can mitigate it if you have really good ventilation, um, but it's still, that's there. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me how we've come back to indoor air quality and, and come back to the importance of that. Um, Tell me about, so Logan, Brigham yeah. Young, he raises this issue 
one thing that I found really fascinating about your presentation was early on in Salt Lake City, some of the um, some of the uh, ordinances or efforts that were undertaken, and you just mentioned one here with that old air quality observer who was literally, you know, keeping an eye out and saying, you, you're putting out too much. And it seemed like some of the early regulations were keyed on this idea of we have a problem, we know that it's air. Of course, they had terrible technology. They didn't have great technologies to solve these issues back then. But what, what for example, was Salt Lake City doing um, to try and crack down on excessive pollution? Yeah, so it, it was really in the 1880s that this the air quality became a, a big issue, and it was there were editorials in the newspaper pretty regularly, and it just kept getting worse as as the city was growing and people were building factories and there were more homes, and so in 1891 was the first uh, air quality ordinance that was passed in Salt Lake, and it was a it was a misdemeanor to emit too much smoke from your chimney. Um, and so, and it was the, the way that they assessed it, it was, it was a five to $50 fine per day. Um, and that's about 150 to $1,500 per day um, in today's dollars. And um, if, if you're, and, it's, and it was really focused on um, bigger buildings. So like apartment complexes and things like that. Um, if they're not operating their boiler that they're using for heat efficiently um, and it's emitting a bunch of smoke, then, um, and, and back then they just, they just called air quality smoke because you would just look at a chimney. If it's burning efficiently, there's not very much smoke coming out of it. If it's not burning efficiently, uh, just like a campfire, when you're not burning a campfire very efficiently, it produces a lot of smoke. So that's really what they're talking about. That's the language they were using. Um, and so, and, and the, the regulations focused on, um, um, or some of the technology they were focused on is, is they called them smoke consumers, which is really just a, a little device that helps you to burn your, your coal more efficiently. Hmm. It's like, you know, it helps to tell you when to, to add more fuel. And, um, and there's a lot of public education efforts to say, to educate people about the optimal way of loading your boiler to, to get it started at the day. Like, do you put the wood in the middle or coal on top or coal on bottom? You know, how do you actually start the fire so that it lights up and heats up as quick as possible and gets to the optimal temperature to produce less pollution? And did you find examples of Salt Lake City actually enforcing some of these ordinances where people faced fines or were you know subject to these misdemeanors for excessive smoke? So I haven't found uh, that. That's a great question, and it's something that I haven't dug into quite yet. Like, how many violations were there, um, or what were there repeat violators? Um, that's something I haven't been able to. I don't know where to actually find that information, um, mm. but it would be fascinating to know if there were certain you know repeat offenders that were constantly getting yeah wrapped up in this. You, Logan, you mentioned there, at, at one point there was a discussion uh, or talk about moving heavy industry to the other side of the Jordan River. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah. So as the as the city was developing, they were trying to figure out, you know, they everybody at the time recognized that that this that air quality was a big challenge. And so they're trying to figure out where do they put heavy industry and um, and it was kind of like the the folks who who they they said folks who are con conversant with the air currents, which is like the what you call an atmospheric scientist in the day, I guess. Um, um, they realized like you can't put the factories you don't want to put the factory in front of one of the canyons because there's air that blows out of the canyons mm -hmm. every day and it would just wash over the whole city and so. They thought, let's put them on the opposite side of the, the Jordan River, which is kind of where Rose Park and the west side are now. And that's where a lot of the factories were located. And that's so it's interesting to think about how air quality actually affected the urban development of Salt Lake City. Uh, concerns about air quality affected urban development. And also, um, development decisions have a really, really long. Um, tail impact. So as we're thinking about where to put new developments and where to put new facilities, um, we should be thinking about, you know, how is that going to impact our community for the next hundred years? Um, so back in the time, back turn of the century, um, before or after, there's no, uh, again, I don't know if this is, I feel like, you know, we're creatures of our time and sometimes it's hard to appreciate not having this backdrop of federal legislation. There's not a backdrop where the EPA has defined what's unhealthy in terms of ozone, that ozone is a pollutant. Um, so, because I have to say, when I first saw that you had given this presentation, you know, the untold history of, of air quality efforts, and that this has been an effort since um, European settlers arrived here in the valley and population really started to, you know, increase. Um, that's kind of disconcerting to hear that, you know, because there's something a little absurd to say. People in this valley have tried to solve this problem forever. Why is, you know, why are we going to be any different now? That actually wasn't my takeaway from your presentation. The thing that I found really fascinating about your presentation is exactly what we've talked about here. That is early uh, leaders in this state were saying, this is a problem. They didn't have that backdrop and they were actually willing to try new things. They were, they, they thought of it collectively. They said, hey, you all have to do your part. Um, you know, and I would say at heart, there was this fundamental recognition that people didn't have a right to pollute, which I think we've lost in modern times. I would say now leadership would probably say to some heavy industry, no, you do have a right to pollute. I can't ask you to stop. But here you see leaders saying like, you got to move somewhere else or stop, which is to me really fascinating. And in some ways, I felt like modern times were more of the aberration. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we have much, much better technology. So we have ways to solve a lot of these problems. Again, I don't know how much you can, you can really clean up your air when you're burning coal and furnaces in every home. <laughs> at, at the end of the day, you're just in a lot of trouble. But that was something that I just found so fascinating about your research about early times. Yeah. And is that, was that your sense? Because you, you'd mentioned there was this mental shift 
prior to the Clean Air Act, um, where people thought about this collectively as opposed to a regulatory environment. Yeah, I mean, there's there was a whole variety of, of attitudes. I mean, there was a big conflict in the in the 19 teens around the smelters. The smelters, the early smelters, just had no pollution controls, and they just they put out all kinds of nasty stuff: um, arsenic, sulfur dioxide, um, lead. Like, and what happened was the farms around these smelters, the crops in the farms around the smelters, were starting to die, and there was actually this big conflict and the, the farmers eventually banded together and sued the smelters and won in court hmm. because the smelters were impacting their ability to grow crops. And then there was all of the, there was a, there was a whole lot of um, you know, political back and forth about that. The, the smelters were accusing the farmers of being smoke farmers, um, just actually not being, not even trying to farm their land, just trying to, buy a piece of land and then sue the smelter. Um, and so, you know, there were, there were all sorts of conflicts and it, in it, it, there, it's a, it's interesting, the variety of, of approaches to address air quality. Um, cause people were just trying to figure out cause they didn't have the facts up. There was no framework to think about it. And what's one potential thing that I, that I want to um, track down from that episode is that in effort to, for the smelters, they tried to show that their farmers are bad farmers. And so they actually invested a bunch of research um, dollars into farming techniques. Like what's the optimal amount of water you need and mm. fertilizer you need. And this is right around the time of the green revolution when, you know, our farming productivity increased a ton. And so I would love to know if Kind of the challenges around air quality played any role in mm. the farming productivity in Utah. And it, to me, that's another anecdote of how, you know, you know, there's opportunity out of challenges and, and we can grow. And I think there's a good analogy for us today. We have all of this clean energy technology that's now available to us um, that's in part, uh, you know, uh, a recognition or, or it's coming from these challenges we have with air quality and with climate change. So tell us a little bit about what changes when the federal government, um, when Congress passes the Clean Air Act and some of its iterations to get us to the, you know, the general framework that we know today. Yeah, so, I mean, in Utah, there was a lot that, that, that was going on kind of at the local city and county level. Um, at the state level, um, in 1962, there was a major state level report that, that really looked at the scale of the problem. Um, and they, they basically understood the scale of the problem and, and they understood um, that they didn't really have solutions. And so, um, but they also didn't, they, they also, I mean, they were, they're hedging their bets and they said, well, we understood, they understood the scale of the problem, but we need some more monitoring to, before the state takes action. And so, that was kind of the focus then was just more state level monitoring. And then the Clean Air Act uh, was amended and created the EPA in 1970. And, and then kind of all of those resources and monitoring went to, to be a division of the, you know, an entity of the federal government um, or it's a state entity, but it's responsive to the federal government. Um, and, 
and then but still like there was still a, a state the attitude was that the state should address this in 1990 governor bangerter um, commissioned another report a second major state report looking at uh, air quality and this before is a, we, logan before yeah. we get to that because this is yeah. i wanted to ask you specifically about that 1990 commission because that's just fascinating but i just wanted to pause on this point about the clean air act to make sure, you know, those who are listening that maybe don't understand why that's different. You know, all of us are familiar today, you, you pull up your iPhone and you've got this air quality index. Um, people maybe heard about things like attainment, non-attainment, they at least know the EPA, um, they know about issues like ozone pollution or, you know, fine particulate matter, PM 2.5. This is all stuff that's come as an outgrowth of this Clean Air Act. Basically, Congress says, we're gonna create an agency, the EPA, and we want them to one, tell us what polluted air is, and then two, create a system where they work with states to for states to develop plans so to ensure that their air meets these standards that the EPA has defined. And that's where you get all of this stuff that we now know today coming out of that. So basically, EPA says, oh, there's a thing, ozone, it's a pollutant. Utah, how are you going to? you're going to address it. Um, that's the Clean Air Act. We fast forward now to 1990. Yeah, and so this is, in 1990, this is the state, you know, recognizing, you know, we were in violation of air quality standards then, as we are still today. Um, but in 1990, it was, it was much worse. And um, so they, they commissioned the state-level report and they made a bunch of legislative and budget recommendations to address air quality. Um, it's it's interesting because many of those are still relevant today. You know, they're they're it's legislation about you know wood stoves and you know <laughs> all of these things. You know, cleaner energy vehicles, um, all of the things. It's it's interesting how how similar it is. But what really at the beginning of the report. Um, they kind of, there was a section where they kind of just gave a broad outline of the, you know, what are, what are Utah's options for the future? And this is in 1990, 30 years ago. Um, they said, option one, we could just, as a state, we could just let air pollution increase. State was growing rapidly back then. And they said, well, you know, it isn't really a viable option because, you know, that would be illegal. We're in violation of air quality standards. It would also be very costly because you know all of all of the health costs from air pollution. So I said, okay, option one, we can't let the air pollution increase. Option two is to you know maintain you know our try to try to get our air pollution in line with the federal air quality regulations and just just focus on the federal um, air quality regulations and just try to do just as much. To get in to, to meet those standards. And that's more or less what we've done for the last 30 mm -hmm. years. That's been our entire objective. And actually, there's been legislation in Utah saying we cannot go beyond the federal standards. <laughs> we can't do anything to get have better air than the federal standards. Um, but then what was really interesting is in 1990, there was still this third option. They had the the in the, the third option they said was we could reduce air pollution way below the health standards by, set by the federal government 
you know, to where we have clean and, you know, pristine air. And they started looking, and they seriously looked at that option. Like, what would it take to get, get to that? And they realized at the time, you know, it, it becomes really hard because of the technology that's available. You know, they, they, they looked at and said, okay, you know, vehicles are producing a lot of pollution. What if we converted all cars to natural gas? Well, you know, that would certainly help, but that's more natural gas than we have. And we don't control the auto manufacturers. And so how are we gonna pass that? Um, and they looked at a bunch of different options and they realized, you know, that it's really, it would be too challenging. It would, it would be, they said, uh, we've, let's see, they said there's, as you start to look at those options, there's all sorts of economic, technical, regulatory, uh, and political issues that are just really challenging. And I think that has been the case for the entire history of Utah. And what's really exciting today is that that is no longer the case. We have technologically, economically viable um, solutions, and we just need the political will to say, oh, let's, let's do that. <laughs> let's that's, lean into yeah, that. That's what I thought was so fascinating. I mean, really, you and I started out with this conversation about how just the, the framework mentally that we think about air quality and how there were these great benefits from the Clean Air Act, but it also put Utah into a little bit of this role of learned helplessness. And those yeah. two alternatives from that 1990 study lay that out you know, concisely. One, continue on this track, which is the one we've been on, where you have the state just barely meeting standards, usually late, um, dragging its feet, probably at the same time suing the federal government saying, you know, we're going to side with, with Texas, don't, don't do cleaner standards for vehicles, even though this is the main reason our air is getting cleaner. Don't make us do anything about ozone because it's all blowing in from China. Like basically at sword point, improving our air. And even though the Clean Air Act was intended to create a floor and everyone was supposed to, you know, they could define their own ceiling. Again, in practice, we've used it kind of as the ceiling, not the floor. And that's been the case in Utah. And then you have uh, very presciently these people laying out in 1990, Actually, we could do better. And the upshot of that is that our economy would do better. Our health would do better. What we need to do is just pursue reducing these emissions. And like you said, they flag those reasons. Um, lack of technology, lack of political will. And yeah, that is the, that's the exciting thing about these days is we have that technology now to really address this problem for the first time. And that's the thing that's so exciting. We haven't solved the political problem yet. Yeah, it comes down. And and I think part of the part of the the other shift that I think needs to happen, and needs to happen fast, is that is recognizing that we're heading towards cleaner energy. We're heading there fast, and the the globe the world leaders are meeting meeting in Glasgow next week to talk about you know how we're going to push even faster into clean energy to address climate change. The world is heading there, whether Utah likes it or not. 
and whether we're leading or not. And we are going through, we are actually in the midst already of a global energy and economic transition from fossil fuel produced energy to cleaner energy. And right now, there is massive, massive market share up for grabs for who's going to produce the technology and who's going to sell it. And the, the technology that's going to create the energy and or manufacture the, the components that's going to create clean energy, all of that is up for grabs. And what's frustrating to me is we're, as the US kind of takes a step back from global leadership and, and as, as Utah isn't you know, leaning in, you know, other countries are, are taking that lead. China is going as fast as possible to, you know, they own a vast majority of the solar panel production capacity of globally. And they're trying to build battery factories as fast as they can. Because if they control that, then that economic development happens in China. It does not happen here. And that to me is just so frustrating because there is a huge, massive opportunity here. And that is the other piece of the mental framework that has to change. This is an opportunity. Addressing our environmental challenges, getting to a cleaner energy future, that is a massive economic opportunity. And that's something that Utah should really lean into. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that message. I mean, here on our doorstep, day in, day out, we see so immediately the effects of, of air pollution. It's been a huge problem for us. On the flip side, we solve that. We have learned this incredible skill, technology, knowledge that really the entire world is looking for right now. And because of that, we do have an opportunity to be significant leader if we'd see it as that opportunity in something, yes, challenging. Yes, we've got to get over especially political hurdles. But if we do and we're willing to invest, we really are creating this strong future for something that we know the world is really looking for. And Utah has a really special role to play in this transition as well. Because, and it is because of our air quality history. And Utah is a conservative state. And, you know, we have conservative leaders. And that, and historically, there's been, um, you know, conservative states have not uh, looked on, you know, kindly towards regulations and, and kind of control from the federal government. And so there's been, there's been this um, kind of loggerhead and, and conflict and but Utah in Utah nobody there's no ideological question about you know do we have an air quality problem and do we need to find solutions for it? everybody agrees with that across the political spectrum and that I think is it's almost it's like a secret sauce in Utah and and because of that I think there's no I think there's no accident the fact that um, Congressman John Curtis is here and is leading the Conservative Climate Caucus in the House of Representatives and now has 70 plus um, other representatives. And uh, Mitt Romney is talking about um, addressing climate change through market-based mechanisms. You know, there is a, a groundswell of interest in environmental stewardship in Utah that I think 
Utah has a huge potential to lead the lead the conservative movement um, out of the kind of conflict of the past and move it into a, a prosperity focused future. Right? And that's why I love the that your legislative initiative is called Prosperity 2030 because I think that's the right framing to think about how we're going to move forward and address these problems. Logan, I could talk to you for much longer on this, but uh, you know we'll lose all of our audience. So people can watch your presentation, um, something made to the Utah Historical Society. Uh, what's the easiest way for them to find that? And we'll include a link to as well in the notes on this, but how should they, how can they <laughs> learn more about what we discussed here today? Yeah, so that was a presentation to the annual Utah State History Conference, and all of those are available on their website, and um, they just, they post the videos onto YouTube, so you can find it that way as well. Um, and, and if folks have questions about it, uh, shoot me an email, look me up at the University of Utah, and, um, you know, if it's something that it's of interest of you, or if you have uh, a piece of information to contribute to this. Like if you have some knowledge about Utah's air quality history, um, drop me a line, let me know. Um, this is still a work in progress. It's, there's still much more to learn. And I think our understanding of where we've come from helps us understand where we should go. Yeah, definitely agree. I mean, your presentation was, like I said, it really shifted how I thought about this. And there's a lot of encouraging stuff to look at in the way that we've dealt with this in the past and, and what we have been doing. So did, I was actually really heartened by um, a lot of the things that you, you discussed in your presentation. So Logan, thank you so much for coming on to our program today. Super interesting topic. Uh, like I said, listeners and, and watchers will also put a link um, so that you can see that presentation or just Google it. Uh, it was really easy to find. If you want to learn more about uh, the legislation we've referenced, in addition to our website, o2utah.org, we have a specific website just for that proposal. It's prosperity2030.org. Um, check it out. Check us out. We're also on the socials. And until next time, signing off, David Garbett, thank you so much for listening and watching. Logan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Goodbye.